Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. You're listening to episode 27 of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts, and just in case it's the first time you're tuning in, today's episode is part two in a two-part series on the topic of grace. And so if you happen to miss the last episode, I recommend that you hit the pause button and review what we said about grace last week before listening any further. These podcasts are kind of like Lord of the Rings. Sure, you can watch them in any order you want, but they make the most sense when you go in order. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Here ends the reading. Now, you may have noticed that the reading this week was the exact same as our reading last week. That's intentional because both this episode and last week's episode are nothing more than a practical reflection on this passage. From God's fullness, we have all received, every last one of us, grace upon grace. That is the gospel that John proclaims, that God has given us grace upon grace. And the idea that we are exploring together today is that it's only from that fullness that we can offer grace to other people. Now, last week I shared a shift that's taken place in my own thinking about preaching, namely that a preacher's job is not to offer motivation or action-oriented exhortation on what you should do, but rather to remind you of who God is and who you already are in God. I also shared that heavy doses of exhortation or beating people over the head with the law is somewhat of a spiritual trap. If I authoritatively tell you what to do, only one of two outcomes will result. Option one, you're going to fail and feel shame, which is like throwing gas on the fire of all the world's injustice and evil. And if you don't understand why that's true, I'd encourage you to go back and to listen to episodes 23 and 24 on the topic of shame. But option two is that it's possible that if I tell you what to do, that you'll succeed and then feel spiritually superior, a.k.a. pride, which is also a disaster, spiritually speaking. And so in 12 years of ordained ministry, let me tell you what I have seen time and time again. That if motivation and inspiration and spiritual tools are all we have on our spiritual map, then a time will inevitably come when we feel absolutely lost. Maybe it's a tragedy that befalls us or someone we love, 
or an addiction we can't shake, or a massive failure, or a change in life we can't bounce back from, or maybe we wake up one day and we realize that no matter how hard we try, our spiritual toolkit isn't enough to get us to that place where we always assumed we'd end up. And so a little bit about my history as a priest. I took a job in 2011 as the canon for Christian formation at the Diocese of Texas, meaning that my main job was to help us think through that process by which we are formed as Christians. And one of the things I realized early on was that the language I was using to describe the Christian life was all language of ascent, of climbing, right? We talk about growing up spiritually or waking up, of our need to increase in faith, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord, up, 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 up. St. Benedict even talked about climbing the ladder of humility, which is just great, right? That means we can climb the corporate ladder Monday through Friday and then come to church on Sunday and climb the ladder of humility. Because there is just something about the Western psyche that loves the idea that all we need is motivation and clarity about the rules of the game and the right spiritual tools because we're in control and we're the ones who climb. And so again, if I had just one message I could share as a priest, it would be to remind you and to be reminded myself that the Christian gospel is not about our climb but about God's descent, about his descent into our world and into our failure and into the heartbreak of human history. It's about God's descent into our mistakes and our pain and our suffering and into the fabulous, beautiful uniqueness of our life. And we have a word for that descent. We call it grace. Now, I'm obviously not saying that our choices don't matter or that the impulse to do is all bad or evil because none of that is true. But what I will raise is a very provocative question, which is that if we believe that there is some spiritual ladder that God wants us to climb and that the higher rungs of the ladder are things that good Christians do. Read the Bible, worship, join a small group, serve the poor, vote in a particular way, whatever that list is for you. In other words, if we think that the Christian life is primarily about us taking action, is it possible that we're actually strengthening the very thing that God's grace longs to shatter, and that's the illusion that we're in control. Because Jesus tells this great parable about that in the 18th chapter of Luke's gospel. Two men go up to the temple to pray. One man's a Pharisee, and with respect to spiritual growth, this guy is really earnest. I mean, he follows the law to the T. And so he goes to the temple and he prays something along these lines. Lord, I thank you that I'm super awesome. I pray every day. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my income away. And I thank you for that. But above all else, Lord, let me tell you what I'm really grateful for. I'm so grateful that I'm not like that guy. 
The camera then pans over to this tax collector who is hyper-aware of his weakness and his sin and his brokenness and his inability to change himself. And so he just beats his breast and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And of course, in telling the story, what Jesus invites us to consider for like the 48th time in this particular gospel, because it's on every single page, is that in God's eyes, the sinner is a-okay. But the religious guy, the one who assumes he can keep the law, and that by doing so, his spiritual condition will necessarily improve, he's the one, Jesus says, who cannot see the one thing needed. And that's a God who showers humanity with love, with mercy, with compassion, with his own life. And again, the word we have to capture that deep showering of mercy and love, we call that grace. And so a question I'd have you consider as individuals and a question for us to consider as a church How is it that we come to experience God's grace, to experience God's love, not just to learn about grace, but to experience it? Now, we can't fully dive into that question today, but what I would suggest is that the impact of experiencing this divine love that is freely given every moment of every day is that it refreshes and lightens and heals Because it fills us with a deep heart knowledge of God's unconditional blessing. Because in knowing grace, we know God. And in knowing God, we know ourselves and other people as God sees us, as justified by the blood of Jesus Christ and as marked as Christ's own forever. From a grace-centered perspective, that is the deepest truth about our identity that we are unconditionally loved and safe, not because we're good, but because God is. And not because of anything we've done, but rather because of the finished work that Jesus Christ has already done on our behalf. This, of course, is the meaning of the how much more. And for me, the reason that message both encourages and empowers is because it means that my brokenness and weakness and sin, those aspects of my story that I want to minimize and hide and grow out of, not only is my brokenness and sin not an obstacle to grace, but they're actually the places in our life where grace is most likely to thrive, to enter in and to spill out. Because at the end of the day, you know what I find so oppressive about this world? It's that it would have us believe that to be worthy of love, we first have to do something that makes us worthy of love. Be successful, hold it together, make partner, be strong. But the world we live in, it has this way of tying our worth and our performance together. And the world we live in does not hand out unconditional blessings. But here's the thing, God does, the church does, and it is the most countercultural thing we get to do. Because the world's blessing is always tied to a standard that we have to meet, and the moment we meet that standard, the standard is raised or the rules of the game change. 
And I don't know about you, but whenever I live my life by the rules of the world's game, it always leaves me feeling anxious and heavy and overwhelmed and sad. I want to share a quote from a person who is steeped in our world's do-something culture. This person writes, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. That quote comes from Madonna. May sound familiar if you've been thumbing through old issues of Vogue magazine. Uh, But I share that quote, and I love that quote, because to me, that really captures the grind of life, that never-ending treadmill of trying harder to keep up, where the moment we double our speed, the treadmill triples it. And for me, what this quote also does is capture the difference, the difference between what the world says is true and what Jesus says is true. The world says we have to prove that we are not mediocre. And we can do that in a million different ways. Worldly success, relational success, spiritual success, financial success, a desire to ascend above whatever flavor of mediocrity that we most fear. But the gospel speaks a better word. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And so here is what I would invite you to imagine this week, that the people in our world most likely to spread love are not people without flaws, without deficiencies, without weakness, but rather people who know the grace, mercy, and love of Jesus in the midst of their weakness and in the midst of other people's weakness. That the people most likely to spread love are not necessarily the ones who are most passionate about their rule of life, but the people who practice self-compassion when they inevitably fail to live into their rule of life. In other words, what I offer for consideration is this— Maybe God has no intention at all of partnering with us to help us get rid of our weakness, our brokenness, our sin, because if we were to ascend above it, if we were to get control and just leave all those things behind, we would at the same time leave behind the only spot where grace can flow in and where grace can flow out. The late Thomas Merton put it like this, If we know how great is the love of Jesus for us, we will never be afraid to go to him in all our poverty, all our weakness, all our spiritual wretchedness and infirmity. Indeed, when we understand the true nature of his love for us, we will prefer to come to him poor and helpless. We will never be ashamed of our distress 
distress is to our advantage when we have nothing to seek but mercy. We can be glad of our helplessness when we really believe that his power is made perfect in our infirmity. And so what we have here are two very different ways of thinking. Madonna and Merton, voice one and voice two. Weakness is bad and something we need to ascend and grow out of. And weakness is good, something to descend deeper into because it is only in and through our weakness that the mercy, love, and grace of Jesus flow into our life. Those are the two voices you can pray about which one resonates most closely with you. And as you do, I want to offer this closing thought. The idea that the life of grace is more about descending than ascending, more about decrease than increase, more about receiving than giving, and more about learning to accept what is than change what is. And that includes our weakness, our sin, our imperfection, because what I believe to be true is that love enters our life through the doorway of weakness and sin and struggle and pain, and that love always flows out that exact same door. And perhaps there is no greater tragedy in the church than when we try and plug the holes where grace flows in and grace flows out. And so as we wrap up this series on grace, here's what I hope for us as individuals, that our focus is not first on what we must do, but rather on what Christ has done. That we don't sit around pleading for forgiveness, but rejoicing that we have it. That we're not always challenging ourselves to love perfectly, but reminding ourselves that we are perfectly loved. In other words, the whole point of being the church is to be reminded of the how much more and then to share of that abundance with other people. Because isn't this the gospel? Yes, we sin, but how much more does God forgive? Yes, we walk away, but how much more does God stay with us? Yes, we falter and we fail, but how much more does God secure the victory on our behalf? If I had only one message to share, it would no doubt be this. And so I'll share it one last time for this episode. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I do pray that your heart would know that truth. For to know God's grace with the heart is the only way we can ever share grace with other people. Let us pray. O God, you have bound us together in a common life. Help us in the midst of our struggles for justice and truth to confront one another without hatred or bitterness and to work together with grace, mutual forbearance, and respect. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.